Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket with me, Simon Hughes, and Simon Mann. We hope you're all keeping well and managing in the lockdown, and maybe you're encouraged by the fact that there's some promising signs in the last week that we might actually have some real cricket to talk about later in the summer. Well, the England players are returning to individual training this week with a view to playing a test series against West Indies in July and Pakistan in August. Although, I think it's worth stressing, nothing is guaranteed by any means. There's still a lot of work to do. Talking about biosecure grounds, secure areas around the grounds where players, officials and media are in a sort of secure bubble for possibly several weeks. All this an effort to get cricket on, so much at stake, so much money at stake, so much money could be lost if there is no international cricket. Also, of course, to satisfy the latent enthusiasm that everybody's got for the game, to to have some games to watch and also to play. And in fact, at the Cricketer magazine, we have an exclusive interview with a senior government advisor who has some good news about club cricket and the recreational game. Look out for that interview at thecricketer.com, the online section, from Tuesday onwards. It certainly feels as if the world is gradually beginning to open up. And actually, I was in... uh, Bushy Park yesterday, seeing a couple of little kids trying to play cricket with their dad, doing some throwdowns on an artificial pitch. And so, you know, the optimism and the encouraging signs are beginning to come. Just a reminder that our five-part lockdown series, Groundbreaking Events in Cricket, is still available for you to download. Please do so. If you liked it, tell someone else who might enjoy it as well. Now, how have you been spending your time during lockdown? Some of us have had plenty more time on our hands than usual of course and 41% of adults have been reading more with crime novels and thrillers top of the reading list I I must admit I've been indulging in those sorts of uh, books American Dirt by Janine Cummins top of my list uh, so far during lockdown about the Mexican drugs trade well worth uh, a read it's a novel 
Sounds good. Yeah, sounds interesting. I, I'm going to follow that one up, actually, because I, I haven't been uh, reading anything interesting at all, mostly cookery books, actually, and just sort of things like the origins of spices. I don't know why it's intrigued me, but I love using spices, different kinds of spices in cooking and just experimenting with them. And so actually it's quite interesting to find out where they came from and how they're uh, use in cooking started so that's been my reading actually for the last couple of weeks in fact I have also written another book uh, which will be due out in about uh, a month or so's time and that's about the business of cricket and it's taken me so long partly because we had to rewrite the last few chapters after COVID-19 hit just when we were about to publish but uh, on the subject of books uh, the Cricketer magazine decided that this month we'd feature cricket books in particular and we've gone round the houses actually and talked to quite a few characters, both personalities, players, commentators, etc., about their favourite cricket books of all time. And we've done a big spread on the Cricketer magazine, which is out this Thursday. So, in this podcast, we're talking to two cricket authors one who wrote one of the best, most acclaimed cricket books of all time, the other who's chronicled one of English cricket's greatest ever achievements from the low point of the 2015 World Cup to the high of winning the World Cup last summer. We have with us Mike Brearley, who wrote The Art of Captaincy, that was published back in 1985, and Nick Holt, who co-authored Morgan's Men, which will be published in a few weeks' time. So let's start with Mike Brearley the former Middlesex and England captain, of course. Uh, I played under him for three years at Middlesex, and it was a fascinating time, actually, uh, because he just had this, what Rodney Hogg said, this degree in people. Rodney Hogg, the former Australian fast bowler, he christened uh, Mike, Mike Brearley as having a degree in people because he was so good at getting the best out of people. He, of course, was recalled to the England captaincy during that incredible Ashes series of 1981 when they'd lost the first test, and Ian Botham had got out of for a pair at Lords, and Brearley, having retired from the captaincy, was brought back through via a sort of rather weird phone call with the chairman of selectors, Alec Bedser, who couldn't get his money into a pay phone, and in the end had to reverse the charges. Uh, Brearley took up the op- offer of taking the captaincy back, and of course England won that dramatic series against the Australians in 1981. After that, he wrote uh, this book, The Art of Captaincy, and he's now writing a new book about the spirit of cricket. He is, of course, England's most successful captain with a near 60% win ratio. And he told us the thought processes behind him writing The Art of Captaincy. I retired in 1982, probably to various celebrations around the place. In in the previous year, I'd started training to be a psychoanalyst. So that for the next four years, I was training, becoming into, I was in analysis and going to seminars and things. And I didn't have a full-time job. And I was doing one of the things I was making a bit of money was by going around and talking about leadership or captaincy, you know, sometimes the business groups or other groups, you know. And um, in the course of those preparations and with some help from somebody who organised some of those seminars, um, I got more and more ideas about how to present, you know, how to think about captaincy. I mean, I had thought about it of course, actually. <laughs> Sometimes I thought about it too much. But anyway, I had thought about it. But here I was presenting it, people arguing with it or discussing it or accepting it or not accepting it. And so I started to organise my thoughts a bit more. And I can't remember who it was, <clears throat> but somebody suggested 
um, why not put this in? Why not make this a book? And, and which I did. And uh, over those three three years, nineteen eighty five, it came out. And somewhat linking up with the psychoanalytic training. How similar and how different is it from being a psychoanalyst? You know. And occasionally, I thought there were overlaps. For example, when when somebody uh, thought about something in a sort of slightly more detached way about leadership, let's say. I mean, one, I'll give you one example, which I've used in the book, I think, which was Roland Butcher talking uh, in 1980, when we'd won the first 11 matches and then lost the next four. And I got a team meeting together and, you know, it was kind of said all the right things. And then I got Roland to speak towards the end of the discussion. And he said that he thought we'd all become complacent. You know, he didn't use that word, but we all turned up at the ground thinking we only had to turn up in order to win. And it was a totally different attitude, he said, from what there had been at the beginning of the season, where every ball counted, the next over counted. You know, there was a sort of urgency and attention to the present. And now we were daydreaming about people used to make jokes about how many finals we'd be in and that sort of thing. You know, there were four competitions. In fact, we won two of them that year, as you remember. Um, so, and I thought that was, you know, not unlike a sort of analytic interpretation. It was something about the atmosphere, something about the emotional orientation, something about that was detached from the ordinary, everyday, conscious things that people were talking about, which were also worth saying. So there was a moment where, not from me, as I say, you know, it was from Roland, but there was something where somebody stood back and reflected on an emotional atmosphere that was making a difference to behaviour and or, and to the whole orientation of a group. I mean, of course, psychoanalysis is, in, the way I do it, is one-to-one, but nevertheless, it was quite an overlap. So I was interested in that too. Is there an overlap? And it does involve listening, very centrally. So those were some of the reasons. Did you um, find your that, the narrative of that book evolving you know was it a sort of unplanned uh yes you know evolution and also did you keep notes uh during your captaincy era you know of anecdotes because the detail in that book is incredible i think it was my idea and i felt it was a good idea it wasn't the editor's it might have been but i think it was mine which was to to do it apart from a short introductory chapter to do it um moment by moment of a professional season, you know, a Middlesex season. So something about what goes on before the season starts, what goes on before a match starts, and then something about what happens when you turn up on the day and what the first things are you think about, winning the toss, picking the team, telling people they're not playing or playing, you know, with other people, deciding um, uh, strategy and, you know, it's linked with later actualities, um, whether they're the same or different. Um, and preparation of staff and training and practice and and then something about, you know, the first session and how things turn out and how you start off and how long you stay with your original plan. And then, I don't know, there were various other chapters, something about declarations or something about on the field. Then there was something about what what's the role of the captain when your bat, the side is batting, you're batting or someone else is batting, usually the latter. And then there's about then there were various chapters like um, I think there was one on on ploys, there was one on anger, there was one on commitment or passion. So I was quite pleased when I once I had that 
that sort of way of breaking up the chapters. Did you feel that you, once you'd written it, you, you thought, yeah, okay, it, did, it had had an, it's had an enormous amount of success, and people, as Simon Hughes, as Yosa was saying at the start, you know, it's a lot of people say it's their their, their favourite cricket book, and it's one that really resonates with them. Did you, when you finished it, do you think, yeah, I think I really have captured what it's like to be a captain in cricket? I I think maybe I was quite pleased, yes. And I thought there were maybe two or three things. One is that um, when when did your book about the nineteen eighties? A lot of hard yakka. A lot when of hard yakka. When did that come out? Ninety seven. Oh, I see. Ages after. Sorry. Well, anyway, what I quite thought about it afterwards was that it wasn't a bloodless book. I mean, I thought your book wasn't a bloodless book at all. You know, it got the the sort of pulse of the dressing room and some of the things. You know, the emotional. The emotional realities, which I think was was good, and I wanted to get that into the book. I didn't. In fact, one of the ways of cutting up the cake of captaincy or leadership is between um, emotion and emotional impact and technical impact. You know, there are things you can do and have to do, which have to do with strategy and technique and knowing what the best thing is to do tactically, and those are important. And you you have to get a, a recent, recent, a reasonable number of them right. But there's also the huge thing about the emotional contact with the people in the team and the impact of that and responding to people differently. I mean, that was probably one of the chapters of the book too, you know, how you respond to different people and different, there are always, everyone is a bit different, although you also have to be fair. So you have to be seen to be not favouring people too much or not too much in the pocket of any one group in the team or any one person for that matter. Um, so, yes, I think so. So, uh, emotion and and technique, and I think I probably the easier thing to talk about was was technique and strategy. You know what fields to have and what basic fields you have to someone like you bowling basically outswing, fast medium, aiming at the off stump, etc., etc. Where the ball's swinging, you'd have two, three slips, a gully, and you know the, the usual things, the basics, and then how the variations might come um, but there's also the whole question of personality and my personality and the interaction with other people and and I think I remember one story I won't say who it was about but there was somebody who had had a good season or this, their side their county side had had a good season and I said to someone when we played them the next year um, you, you know they'd done very well the year before and the captain uh, must have done really well. And he said, well, yeah, he is good in his way, he said. But we feel we know you better for playing against you once a year than we know him playing with him all the year round. And that somehow made an impression on me. Of course, you can know someone with their faults, you know, wearing their heart on their sleeve and you see the wrinkles and all the rest of it just as much as the, the good qualities, sometimes more. <laughs> but um, I was pleased with that comment. And I thought that I thought that commitment and passion um, were, even though they would sometimes tip over into irascibility or even occasionally loss of temper, as you know, um, even though that was the case, um, I think it was um, a, a better fault than being cold or, de or too detached. I reread a couple of chapters this morning. Um, 
and I I just picked out a couple of things. I made a few notes, and one of them was I I noticed that you said you enjoyed press conferences, Mike. Yeah. What? Why was that? Well, it was like I think I used the phrase in that chapter. It was like being a cat on a wall. You know, you could fall off on either side. Again, the either side would be saying too much, giving things away, or saying things that you probably shouldn't say in public. And on the other hand, being closed down, inhibited, stiff upper lip, boring, you know. Not, and actually, one of the things that helped me was the realisation, two realisations. One is that if you're captaining a side and you're passionately involved in it and you're in the middle for half the game when you're fielding, maybe even for a while while you're batting, and you're in the dressing room for the whole game, you know a lot more about the game than most people do from watching it from a distance and especially perhaps people who haven't played at that sort of level as well but anyway you know about the game and I also thought people want they do want to understand things better they may be wanting to have a go at you or find a story that they can use that's not to your advantage etc and it's not nearly so easy when you've lost of course but nevertheless I thought it was quite interesting trying to diagnose a game what was the turning point of this game? You know, when did we really think we had a chance of winning, even though for the first half of the game we had looked as if we had no chance? You know, what went wrong at the beginning? You know, did we do anything wrong in a tactical way? Sometimes, yes. Often, I thought, well, you know, from that, it's very easy after the fact to say it was wrong, but it wasn't always wrong. Um, so, as indeed I think happens nowadays with the government and the coronavirus, etc. Not that I'm on the government side, but nevertheless, I think a lot of post hoc, after the event rationalisation comes in and then people can very confidently criticise. So that was one thing I liked about it. And, and half of that was a bit like when playing for Middlesex in the early days when I was at either at Cambridge doing philosophy or in Newcastle teaching philosophy, coming into hard-bitten dressing room and uh, with a lot of humour, but quite a lot of biting qualities as well. And, you know, people could have a go at me. What's all this philosophy we're paying all this money for? And later on, what's all this funny thing called psychoanalysis, you know? And what I realised was that alongside the wish to take the piss and to score points was a real curiosity. Going back to the art of captaincy briefly, um, lots of players have read it, current players, um, captains of, of the past... Are you conscious of the influence it's had on people, on players, captains? No, I can't say I am. I, I didn't know that. I, I am pleased to hear it. I didn't know it. I, I, I don't know. It's a little bit like, did I? what did I learn from reading the book? There's also the question, what do other people learn from it in a way that they can put into practice? Because part of it is this whole business of how you're, is your orientation. It isn't do this at this time and do that at another time. It's oh, That's there. It's um, your whole response to the game, response to the opposition, response to the, especially to your own team. Um, so I didn't know that. I'm always pleased to know... I mean, another thing that pleases me, I'm very pleased when you tell me that, but another thing that pleases me is when somebody who's got no interest in cricket has read it and thinks it was helpful. Like head teachers or people in the army or, I don't know... Uh... Sam Mendes, well, I mean, he was... Obviously, he knew about cricket, but he but he found yes. it very helpful, didn't he? He did. 
and and he was very generous about it. Yes, he said he had it in his in his room when he was uh, directing American Beauty, which was wonderful. It was a great film, I thought. <laughs> I've always thought that would be a really interesting job too, directing a good you know a good film or a, with a good cast. It would be fantastically, fantastically interesting or a play. Well, I mean, I Sorry. suppose Captaincy is like that in a way, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It is. It is. There were great, no great teams of of assistants in the dressing room. The captain had a great deal of of say, and in a way, it was a sort of it was a a period which I think Ed Ed Smith called it um, the period from sort of I think he was talking about you know Illingworth's time, my time, the seventies and the eighties was a time was that was a sort of high point for captaincy. People would be county captains and then play test cricket or and then become captain of England possibly a few of them and and you know you got an apprenticeship as count and you had this this uh, largely free range especially in county cricket I mean there were uh, checks and balances there were you know there was a committee and there was a cricket committee and there were people who reappointed you or didn't and there were people in the team who'd tell you pretty quickly if they thought you were getting things wrong. But nevertheless, you know, more or less the captain ran the net practices and the training, more or less, a bit of bit of assistance from the coach. So I think it was a fascinating time. A lot of the captains at that time were in residence, you know, for a few years, uh, like you said, in a way, rather than being hostages yes. to the fortune of a team, they yes. were there to evolve with the team more, I suppose. There was more of that chance. Well, I needed quite a long time of Middlesex not doing anything particular. In 75, we were in two finals, which both of which we lost, which was the most remarkable thing, really. We nearly lost to the minor counties south uh, in, the, in the quarterfinal um, at Amersham. We needed about 20 to win in a low-scoring match with eight wickets down. And Tim Lamb and Martin Vernon put on 22 to win the match for us. And Dennis Compton, who lived in Amersham, was sitting in the front... And I'm afraid to say he was he was making it audible, audible, audible. I think he might have had the odd gin and tonic or whiskey, and he was making it quite audible that the the club was in a very, very bad way. <laughs> well, that that that's a beautiful link onto um, your the book you're working on at the moment, the spirit of cricket. Um, so, just tell us a little bit about that. Um, why, why have you called it that? And what is the spirit of cricket? Well, I mean, this came out of being invited to give the MCC lecture last year, uh, the Cowdery Lecture called The Spirit of Cricket, which is a yearly thing. And I was asked by the president then, Anthony Reeford, if I would give the lecture. And I, I must say I was very honoured to do it. After the lecture, I walked round from the nursery end where the lecture had been given to the pavilion where there was a sort of small reception dinner afterwards. And um, I, I met... Uh, near the Grace Gates, my editor and my agent, and they said, we've got an idea for your next book. So anyway, I decided I'd like to do it, and, and I found a sort of pattern. It's not a rigid pattern, but the pattern is to have a chapter on specifically cricket issues like mancadding, you know, running somebody out of the bowler's end when they're backing up too soon. And the whole thing that came up when Joss Butler was warned and then run out by the Sri Lankan off-spinner, Senanayaka. 
at Edgbaston in the one-day match in about 2014, was it? Anyway, I think it was about then. Or about sandpaper, which came up in the course of the, this last, uh, that had just come up in the course of that winter. Or walking, or those kinds of issues, or, you know, or how did, how has it come New Zealand always seemed to behave better than other countries? You know, and what was the role of McCullum, McCullum in that? And what was that about? You know, what's the, what is a good spirit as expressed by them? And, um, and then some of the tricky issues, and then some of the things like courage of being a sportsman. And I thought of someone like, um, someone I greatly admire, Virat Kohli. And I thought about his, the courage in coming out with things directly, sometimes provocatively, um, but that went against the grain or, you know, that people didn't want to hear. And, and I thought that was something I thought was an important factor in leadership and, and part of the spirit of cricket, to be honest, but for it to have become almost a habit of mind. And something about and racism and things that are deleterious to the spirit and, you know, and, what's the di- and, then, what, and then alternating those chapters with chapters that were broader, are broader, like a chapter on, um, on the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law whether in law or in religion or in sport, in cricket, uh, or, or issues about, well, what's so special about cricket? Is it different from other sports in any way? You know, what about a spirit of tiddlywinks or a spirit of um, basketball? You know, it's interesting that because I think, I think actually that that spirit of cricket is different. Cricket is different because, and I, funny enough, whenever I do, do talks, you know, around the place, I often finish with a little uh, sort of spiel about the people in this room because quite often I yeah. do these dinners of or events which are cricket lovers, societies, stuff like that. Yeah. And they're all people who are devoted to the game uh, or they're a club with people who have got loads of volunteers and you know they're keeping the club going on a shoestring. And I often yeah. use them as an example yeah. of the spirit of cricket because they're people yeah. who turn up uh, totally... Um, loyally, um, yes. in a dedicated way, don't expect anything back. Uh, yes. Club people who just give up their time to run the club, yes. to do the fixtures, yes. to mow the grass. I met some guy up in north, you, you, uh, near Scotland, who was 75 and had been mowing the grass for the club for 25 years with some old mower three times a week. You know, and that was his, yes. that was the spirit. To me, that is a spirit of cricket also. I agree with you. I mean, is it is that more so than in people who run the local dramatic society or you know put out the chairs and uh, make sure the piano's tuned and I don't know whatever you do for the local dramatic society is it different from that is it different from um, you know the stalwarts of a football club I, I, you see that, that that's an interesting question I, I too think there may be a difference partly to do with traditions some of them snobbish and superior you know in the past the public school ethos of cricket which has a lot of good in it but which can be can be used as a sort of expression of superiority you know, which is also a chapter in the book and how how important is a maxim like play according to the spirit of the game of any use or is it too vague and waffly and that's another question another interesting question but yes so, so something about the traditions of cricket and and something i think about the fact that cricket is a game in which there's, it's, it's composed of individual contests between two protagonists, a bowler and a batsman, but in the whole context of a team game. 
So it's more like a family, you know, you have to get, you know, you have to look after yourself, you have to get your own words in, you have to win the argument sometimes or, you know, stand up for yourself. But you also have to give space to other people and and recognise their value, you know. And I, I, I like it when, when someone who's a great player really acknowledges an ordinary player. I don't know, someone... I remember talking to Viv, somehow it comes to mind, and... Um, I, I can't remember why, it was two or three years ago, I can't remember why, we were talking about courage. And I think I may have said to him that I thought his... I, I think I remember telling him about seeing him get hit on the cheekbone by Dennis Lilly in one of those World Series matches on the television when we were in Australia. And and Dennis came following through as, as if, at last, at last, and all Viv did was adjust his cap and get ready for the next ball, you know, sort of nudge his shoulders a bit and sort of as if it hadn't hurt him you know and then Viv said to me you know man he said what courage is is what Mike Gatting did you know get hit hit him flat on the nose by Malcolm uh, his face spread out you know nose spread out over his face came back three weeks later to bat against them again that's a real courage he said you know I mean Gat's a fine player of course but he's not a great like Viv I mean you know he's a He's a really, really good player, but he's immortal. And 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 his his you know there was a great a great respect for a fellow professional. I mean, Ian Botham had something of it too. You know, he could he said to me once, you know, that innings of yours, I batted till lunchtime and the ball was moving around, and I got twenty three not out or something at lunch. He said that was really important for the team. He said, you know, and he probably scored one hundred and twenty in two hours or whatever or took eight wickets in the innings or something. So that that sort of thing meant a lot, that generosity. So there are a lot of, a lot of virtues in, in a team game in which you have to be selfish and selfless. I mean, one of the things I feel about the spirit of cricket is it, it means different things to different people. For, I mean, for example, just on the, the running out backing up, some people say, well... You know, that, that's just reprehensible to do that. And then other people say, well, hold on a second. Isn't the batsman trying to get a, a, a small advantage, especially in one day cricket where, you know, millimetres matter in, in run out situations when you're perhaps trying to turn a, a one into a two. And yet, it, it, so historically, it seems to me, um, it, it was a real no-no in the game. And, and actually, the attitude has sort of changed on that a little bit now because now in the laws and the MCC now is saying, you know, it is up to the batsman to, to stay in his or her ground. I agree with you entirely. Now, that doesn't mean to say there's no good arguments involved on, a, on both sides. And, you know, as in moral questions and sometimes in legal questions, you have to say, you know, that either of two views is, is good enough. Even in legal questions where you may have to come down on one side or another, you might have to resort to, well, it's not proved guilty yet, you know. So I uh, the balance of... The balance of right and wrong, of good and bad, may be absolutely equal. And there may be other things that are even more important, like whichever you do, respect the decision, you know, and respect the opposition. Uh, so it isn't a matter of someone being a villain because they've run you out if you're backing up too far. It's a matter of you being a bloody fool and then being shrewd and perhaps a bit close to the mark. But they're not villains. You know, they're not, it's not a moral superior. So very often the balance is, 
you know, uh, I'm thinking of whether to have on the cover of the book some a pair of balances because a lot of the spirit of cricket is about balance, yeah. and a lot of the laws of the game are about getting the balance right between batsman and bowler. You know, you, and, and between negativity and positivity. So you know, um, sometimes the balance is even. And you know, you could say that about walking too. The Australian attitude has always been: you don't walk, but you don't show the um, show, you don't show disrespect to the umpire by hanging around or banging your bat on the ground or looking at the edge of your bat when you're given out. You get off the f- field, and that's a perfectly respectable point of view, in my view. And so is walking. But of course, some people who walk don't always walk. So um, your, we can see your book uh, collection behind you. Possibly uh, they're the analytical books rather than they're the psychoanalysts' books rather than cricket books. But if you had to choose one book to be uh, either isolated in lockdown with or sent to a desert island with, a cricket book, uh, yeah. have you got one that you could take with you? Well, it has to be the one that most people choose. C.L.R. James. Yes, Beyond the Boundary. I think because it ranges so widely, you know, it is about cricket, but it's also about a lot of other things, about sociology, about uh, aesthetics, uh, about politics, about racism, about colonialism, about uh, social history, about the, the, you know, the centrality of Grace in Victorian, W.G. Grace in Victorian society, um, about the West Indian captaincy and, you know, Frank Worrell and... Uh, the campaign. I think it's a terrific book. I mean, it's, 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 it's not a perfect book, but it's a terrific book. And, and, the, and it's well written and it's extremely readable. And the man is a fascinating man. So it would have to be that one. But uh, I mean, there, there are other books I like. I don't read that many cricket books. A lot of hard yakka comes quite high on the list, but then that's partly because you're so rude about me. <laughs> you're not, by the way. No, you're not. Well. I mean, you're, well, I, I mean, deliberately, it's funnily enough, you know, that book is interesting because I was rude about people, but I was also even more rude about myself. And yes. that was, in a way, that was the, the technique, I suppose, that allowed me to I get agree. away with it. And do you know what I did? There's one thing I did with that book, which I think yeah. was the key, was I didn't put yeah. an index in. And the reason I didn't put an index in was I knew that people would immediately go to the index to see a reference to them, like a Tufnell or an Embry or a Brearley or whoever, would go and look at the index and they go, right, let's see what he's written about me. Oh, he slagged me off again, you know. And they'd only see the sort of, they might only see the negatives. They wouldn't see that I've maybe been a little bit rude about them, but I've been even ruder about myself. Well, that's very interesting. I I think that's half of the reason. The other half of the reason, from my point of view, is that I try, when I'm being critical of someone, to also underline or at least uh, represent the good side of them as well, you know, the things I admire about them. So that it isn't, it isn't, it doesn't look like, well, that's the label that goes on to that person, you know? That it's a more nuanced or complex or... You know, people are, contra- we're all contradictions too. And I think you're right, the other half is not to exempt yourself, or at least not entirely, you know, at least show some of the things. There's some things I wouldn't show but voluntarily, but there are other things I do. And, and I do in the spirit of cricket. Another book I like, I just wanted to mention another book I like, which is Gideon Haig's book on Shane Warne. And there again, it's, it's, a, it's a book about which shows the flaws of the man, you know, and the variability of the man, but it really captures something about him and, and it really gets, gets into that personality that, you know, who is really probably 
one of the most you know provocative combative people on the, on on a cricket field you know with his strut and his 10 pace w- walking pace tantalizing run, sort of so-called run up i mean he was at the presence of the man on the field so i thought that was a, a really good book well in preparation for that interview i reread some of art of captaincy i mean i read it at the time absolutely fascinating book it's one of those books that that stands the test of time the other thing about it as well is it's a fascinating historical document you go back and you discover what were the issues of the time what were occupying people's minds I mean, for example there was a, a section in it towards the end where mike was uh, describing or telling the story of E.W. Swanton wanting to draw a line down the middle of the pitch. E.W. Swanton, the, the former broadcaster and, and journalist, he wanted to draw a line down the middle of the pitch, basically to outlaw short-pitch fast bowling. Of course, short-pitch fast bowling was a big issue last summer when Steve Smith was, was hit by Joffre Archer, the whole sort of talk about concussion. And E.W. Swanton wanting to outlaw it from the game by drawing this line. And if the bowler didn't you know, bowl behind the line, then that would be... And no balls. So it's those sort of things. It's that sort of detail that's that's fascinating. Uh, so many stories in the book, and it is you know it it is both a a fascinating insight into the the mind of a, a cerebral captain, but also it, it makes you realise that what was being discussed at the the time he was writing as well. What were the the big issues? Yeah, and I suppose it also shows that that the captaincy is largely man management. And man management is a is a big uh, aspect of all sorts of culture now, you know, business culture and sports culture and so on. Uh, so it is very applicable to, to the modern day. Uh, I know that uh, England captains of the past, recent past, have, have read the book. In fact, I gave the book to Nasser Hussain when he first took over as England captain in 99, and he found it very useful. He he talks about that in the Cricketer magazine. Andrew Strauss is a huge admirer of Brearley and the art of captaincy and, and kept it by his side quite a lot during his captaincy tenure. Actually, I, I think it's also it teaches you a lot about yourself I read little bits of it and learnt uh, uh, about the way I behaved as a young player by the time the messages had really sunk in it was too late but it's just there are so many aspects of it that make you think about yourself and and how you operate in life I think one of the other aspects about the book is it takes you right inside the game as well. And I think that's what a good sports book does. It makes you feel, yeah, this I, I'm sort of getting the truth. I'm getting close to the action. You're getting inside the mind of Mike Brady. You're going inside the, the dressing room. And that's what you did with a lot of hard yakka as well. I mean, perhaps in a way you might have spilled some uh, dressing room confidences. I mean, you, you really sort of told it as it was. I mean, w- were there any repercussions in, in writing a book like that in that way? I think one or two, and and maybe I wasn't really conscious of them uh, at the time. They sort of came out later. I think I probably annoyed a few people and maybe made people a bit suspicious of me for a while. The thing is that a lot of that book was based on columns that I'd written for The Independent, uh, which was called From the Inside, actually, A County Cricketer's Diary. So, you know, they were quite uh, divulgent of of the dressing room kind of life. And in the late 80s and early 90s, people weren't 
as bothered and as touchy about some things then as they are perhaps now. And people are much more uh, protective of their private life. And you know, it's a bit of an odd dichotomy because people put loads of stuff on social media now about their private life and yet there are certain things they're very sensitive about so uh, there were times that I certainly felt with some players Phil Tuffle was one John Embry was another where I I think I was probably a little bit too rude about them but what I was trying to do was be even ruder about myself and also point out their good sides so that there was a there was a sort of a balance to the 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 general revelations um over time i think people have realized that a lot of it was meant in in good humor and uh, so there weren't any lasting repercussions luckily i'm sure you've got your favorite cricket books by the way and we're doing a little poll on the cricketer uh, about that so if you go to the cricketer twitter feed you can actually enter your favorite three cricket books We'll top them up and see who is a winner at the end of the week. So please get involved in that. We'd love to hear what are your favourite three cricket books. Now, last summer was one of the most enjoyable, most captivating in recent memory, followed by... Sadly, the anticlimax of this summer. Things might improve, though. We still don't know if we're going to get any cricket. Although, as we mentioned at the start of this podcast, the signs in the last week are more encouraging, with Pakistan agreeing in principle to come to England for a three-test series and a T20 series, while discussions and planning are continuing with the West Indies Cricket Board over a three-test series in July. Let's take you back a year to when we were all getting ready about this time last year for the men's 50-over World Cup. Joffre Archer just made his debut, hadn't he, in the England one-day side, and teams were completing their warm-up programmes before embarking on the 48 matches that ended up with that incredible drama at Lords on the 14th of July. Nick Holt is The Telegraph's new chief cricket correspondent, and he's co-authored a book with Steve James of The Times about England's ultimately successful campaign. It's called Morgan's Men, and it charts England's progress from no hopers in 2015 to champions last year. So the book was written very much in the moment, uh, just after the World Cup victory. And the idea was to really, it's a piece of reportage. It's as the World Cup unfolded. Um, The first chapter starts with a report of the final by Steve, which is uh, probably the most detailed report you'll ever see, ever read of that amazing uh, final. The last chapter is the super over. uh, And in between, we go back four years and detail the story of England's uh, defeat in the uh, 2015 World Cup, the humiliation they suffered in Australia, and 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 basically tell the story of how they rebuilt the team, rebuilt the culture, rebuilt the style of of play, and then we tell the story of uh, the World Cup itself. So there is a report from each England game, which uh, and, and and each uh, report is a vehicle for profiling a player who had uh, a major role to say in that game. We both covered every game. I covered all the tournaments leading into the World Cup, where every press conference, every net practice. And it's just tying that whole story together and how it unfolded and putting it all in one place. Do, do you think, um, in the end, that, that the most important person was Owen Morgan in that whole campaign? Definitely. I mean, he, he led the way 
in almost every uh, aspect, um, not just uh, the way the team played, but in selection, um, uh, in culture. Uh, just look at the way that he, he cut Alex Hales out of the tournament uh, on the eve of the tournament um, because he felt that he'd, he'd um, broken the trust of the team. Um, and he was a fine player and an important batsman leading into that four years. Um so yes, I think I think the 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 players had total total faith in him. They they followed him. They would follow him to the end of the world. I think during that during that final, I think the other key player was Jason Roy. And we saw, we you know in the as the book unfolds, you see in the tournament how how much they struggled without Jason Roy in those matches when he was injured, and we 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 sort of reveal how uh, that that injury was a lot more serious than but we were told at the time uh, reporting on the tournament. Um, and really, he was quite fortunate that he made it back when he did, because I think if he hadn't have come back, they wouldn't have reached the final. What have you learned about England's um, World Cup campaign from the process of writing the book? Um, I think it was more that we learned we learned more about the, um, uh, the 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 time before the World Cup, because the the the, the World Cup was a result of of a lot of hard work, and 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 we we forget how poor poorly they performed in the past, and how. Uh, 50 over cricket just wasn't the top list of the pri- top of the list of priorities um for a long period of time and the sort of impact that that had on performance particularly when they came to global tournaments they would turn up at a global tournament and all of a sudden you'd see the load of test players in the one in the uh, in the ODI side so it was really that that the, the years leading into the world cup that set the platform for the actual world cup itself so it meant that when things did slightly go wrong at the world cup they still had the confidence to stick with what they'd done before because it had been successful and we saw that put under pressure the most after the defeat at Headingley to Sri Lanka when all of a sudden it felt as if the world was coming to an end and their tournament was 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 falling apart around their ears but they stuck to that they stuck to the way they played and they brought made some big decisions bringing Plunkett back into the team leaving out Mo and Ali again that was Owen Morgan leading the way on that one um deciding that more uh, that Moen was struggling both with his confidence with his batting with his bowling and so he turned back to Plunkett a player that he trusted in difficult situations in the past and he repaid him all the way into the final and then of course post that and we do get this in the book actually um the way that Plunkett was then left out after the world cup again that's that's Owen deciding right you know your time has come I think one of the interesting things about England's World Cup story is there's a sort of feeling that there's a sort of a gradual line that just goes up from 2015 to 2019. There was a sort of inevitable feeling about it that they were putting this plan in place and it was going to work. It was a, a home World Cup and there was almost like an inevitability about them winning the World Cup. But actually, you, you touched on it there. The fact that they lost to Australia, they lost to Pakistan, they lost to Sri Lanka. Their World Cup was really in peril. And then even in the final, really, they needed a, a fluke to win it. I mean, who, who, we don't know what would have happened if that deflection hadn't gone off Ben Stokes's bat for four. There were an enormous number of, sort of hiccups on the way. It's, it's, it's funny, this idea of how we, how we won the World Cup. Well, part of it was with a huge stroke of luck, actually. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, in the final itself and the super over and the, the deflection off the bat, the the fact that Trent, Trent Bolt trod on the rope when, when Stokes, uh, in you know, was to, to miss that catch off Stokes, that probably would have would have won the game as well. Um, there were so, ma- so many moments of outrageous fortune for them. But, you know, when you look back at the whole story, you think, well, you, you, I know it's a well-worn cliche that make you, you make your own luck, but they probably deserved that after the journey that they'd been on in the previous three or four years. Um, in some ways, they played poorly in the World Cup compared to where they were before. They were far more inconsistent. I mean, that defeat to Pakistan at Trent yeah. Bridge was a bad performance. They were bad-tempered. They were getting wound up by the crowd. That was a little sign of the pressure that they were under. I think the rest of us felt that they were invincible, that they were impervious to all this pressure building on the outside. But that day, it came to the fore. They, I remember... Chris Wokes, of all people, getting upset with um, some of the chanting he was getting from the crowd at Trent Bridge. There were little rumours after the game as well. They were hinting darkly at were they were the Pakistan players ball tampering. It was it was a pretty bad tempered game. They went away actually, and Morgan said to them after that game, "I want you to go away. We've got a few days before the next match. I want you to." Go back to your families. I think Mark Wood went to um, Harry Potter World with his wife. You know, they all went away and they forgot about everything. And then they came back in the next match, Sri Lanka, and, and they thumped and they thumped them. And they 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 were back in the game again. One one of the early chapters in the book is uh, we sat down and talked to Nathan Lehman and about about the the sort of statistical uh, side of the game and how they used uh, various different bits of data to help formulate their strategy. But one of the key things was that being the home the host nation gives you an enormous advantage um going into a world cup um and we they knew that this was a once in a lifetime chance it wasn't going to happen again we weren't going to have a world cup at home in the in 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 the careers of the of these players the next world cup was in india and we know how england struggle uh on subcontinental pitches um this was this was their chance their opportunity uh to prove that they could handle that pressure and that and that they had the strength of character and and the belief in their own um, uh, their own strategy to see to see it through all the way. But I think that England need to be peaking towards big tournaments. There are teams like Australia. I mean, Australia reached the semi-finals of the World Cup when they they weren't really focusing on the World Cup. They they were focusing on the Ashes last summer. They still got to the semi-finals um, and gave England a good thumping at Lords as well in the group game. But England, they need to. We need to have that focus on on fifty over cricket. Otherwise, we wouldn't have got that far. We wouldn't even have threatened. I don't think. What's your biggest revelation, Nick? Uh, there's a couple of things really. I mean, the stuff about the uh, the culture of the team, some of the big meetings that happened. You know, the meeting guys from the All Blacks, uh, Manchester City, to work on this this uh, courage, unity, respect um, uh, culture that they've built brought into the side. That was actually done with Root as well, not just not just Owen Morgan. There's a little nugget in there about um, what Ben Stokes did between innings um, in on, in the final and what he did as he prepared to go out to bat in the Super Over. Um, um, and and uh, yeah, there, there, there's little bits and bobs like that scattered throughout the book. And I think also you'll read it and hopefully you'll think, oh, I'd forgotten that that happened. And you'll realise that there was so much more that we, now we just we just can't remember because we, all we remember now is the Super Over and Joffre Archer. So that's Nick Holt, the Chief Cricket Correspondent of The Telegraph, and Morgan's Men is out in a few weeks' time. Morgan's Men now, but 
for how much longer. He was going to lead England in the World T20 later this year in Australia. There's been a lot of talk in the last few days that that might be delayed for a year. I wonder what that means for Owen Morgan as captain. If things are being delayed and delayed, is the next World Cup going to be delayed? How long is he going to continue as England's white ball captain? I sort of had a feeling that it might be sort of rather more short term than long term, that World T20 this year might be it, although there's another, there was another World T20 scheduled for next year as well. Incredibly, in India, that might be put back as well. So I wonder what that, mean, what that means for Owen Morgan as, as England captain, as Joss Butler, of course, waiting in the wings, Yozza. Yeah, I, I think Morgan is, is certainly very important to England, of course. I mean, as Nick Holt mentioned there, and as we all know, he's very much the, the kingpin of England's white ball cricket and everybody trusts him and relies on him. And I think that he'll leave a massive hole when he, he doesn't play anymore. I, I think a lot will depend on his fitness. Uh, he's got this sort of long-standing back complaint, which tends to flare up from time to time, whether he can keep that under control, how much that uh, plays on his mind. Uh, how sort of free he can move around. I don't think age as a as an overall thing is is a problem particularly. I mean he's had you know a fair bit of time off now, and so you know it, I wouldn't have thought his body apart from his back is going to be particularly suffering. Um, I, the other thing to think about is is a financial thing for these players these days. You know if as soon as they give up, you know they're looking at probably in his case a, a million pound black hole. <laughs> So, you know, it's a difficult decision for him. But, uh, mm. I mean, he sort of certainly set his target on this year's World T20, which I think is going to be postponed. I think it's going to now uh, probably have the IPL take place around the time of the World T20 would have been, so September, October. And Morgan is involved in that, uh, or potentially he will be at the Kolkata Knight Riders. So maybe, you know, that's the time to, to, to have a look at the situation for him and see what his fitness state is. Well, that was all a, a year ago. It seems it seems incredible to go from the, the high of last summer to the low of this summer. Let's hope we do get some cricket in the future. In our next podcast, we'll bring you what we and you have all been missing so much of late, the signs of cricket. Goodbye for now. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.